Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, and there's times when we need each other, uh, and uh, this is another one of those times. And it seems like um, the Lord has been putting our church through the ringer as of late. Um, and many of you have heard, um, if you have not, our beloved brother, uh, George Martin, on May 8th, this last Tuesday, went to be with Jesus. And his faith, his faith has been made sight. And we believe that George put his trust in Jesus and, and he didn't see Jesus, but today he doesn't just place faith. faith. Faith is in something we can't see, but today George can see Jesus. George can embrace Jesus. George is walking with Jesus. George is free from all sin, from all death, from all pain, from all trials. And, and while we miss him dearly, and while we weep with Francie and with the Martin family, we weep with those who weep, we do not weep like those who have no hope. And now it's just us waiting until we get to go see George again, see Jesus and dance together. And it's because of the realities of what we've faced this week that the message that we're walking through in the book of Romans is so serious. This is life and death. This is not a game. And we need to know the power of the gospel. As we're going to walk in today, this message is an appropriate timing for what we're walking through this week. We, we love, as people, we love a good courtroom scene, don't we? Uh, whether it's in the movies, classics like To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, Kramer versus Kramer, and Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson, and of course, uh, probably uh, the most heavy, weighty, and important courtroom movie of all time, Legally Blonde, right? <laughs> it's the really, just a deep, profound movie. Uh, but then also in real life, you know, we, we love, we're captivated by scenes in the courtroom. We think of the O.J. Simpson trial in the 90s and everything that went down there. We remember the creation versus evolution trial, the Scopes trial, uh, of course, Nazi Germany coming under fire in the Nuremberg trials, and then in the 90s again, uh, Bill Clinton and his impeachment process. I did not have relations with that woman. We know the quotes. We remember the scenes. And what is it? What is it that draws us into uh, the courtroom? What, what, what makes us, what is it that we, makes us love uh, being a part of this, witnessing this? And I think for you and I, uh, we, there's a draw toward uh, right and wrong being decided. The truth and justice being proclaimed. And we're watching these movies, we're watching these trials in reality, we're rooting for the good guy right? Or we're rooting against the bad guy for him to get his comeuppance. And sometimes the movies will even get us to kind of get on board with the bad guy. And either way, we want the person we're, we're rooting for to come out on top, for the, the trial to be decided in their favor. And when we look at our own lives, we, when we look at the courtroom of our life, we put our, when we are on the stand, man, we so desperately want to be declared not guilty, we, we want to be innocent. And so we will look for any scrap of evidence in our lives to justify ourselves. Well, I'm not that bad. I'm, I'm way better than my neighbor. Have you seen my neighbor? Well, yeah, I did that, but they did that to me first. I had to. I was backed in a corner. I had no choice. What would you do? And we go to all lengths. The, the pride in our hearts knows no depth to justify our actions, our words, our behaviors, our thoughts, because we don't want to be declared guilty. 
And we see in, in, in Romans chapter 10, uh, Paul, he's talking about Israel, but it's the same thing for us. He says they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. That's through Jesus. We'll see next week. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. Now, why would we do that? Why wouldn't we just accept Jesus? Why do we keep trying to justify ourselves by our own works? Because at the heart of, of pride, we want to look good. And we want to be good. We want to be accepted by other people and by God based on our own merit. And so our pride refuses any sort of grace, and says, I want to do it on my own. I want to be good. Essentially, we're saying, I want to be God. And you remember that scene, we were just talking about a few good men, and I love that scene when Jack Nicholson is on the stand, and he says to Tom Cruise, you want answers? And Tom Cruise goes, I want the truth. And what's Jack's famous retort to him? You can't handle the truth, right? Uh, Pretty good impersonation, says, you can't handle the truth. And here's the reality. We, we shake our little human fists at God and say, we want answers, God. And there are times in our life when he doesn't seem good. And there are times in our life when, when, when we try to justify the things we've done that you're not right in punishing me. That's not a good God that would allow those things to happen. And we say, we want answers. And God's response to us is, you can't handle the truth. You can't handle the reality of the depths of your own sin. And that's why... Paul has spent these first three chapters, as we're walking through this, this, this outline of Romans, these first three chapters, this last month, we've spent just looking at sin. Because what, what Paul is showing us here is until we shut our mouths, until we stop trying to justify ourselves, we will never accept, accept God's free gift of acquittal, of innocence, of freedom that can only be offered in Jesus so that's exactly where Paul's going to land the plane here this morning in his closing arguments of mankind. Remember, we're in this courtroom. And what he's going to show us this morning, we're going to look at four things. He's going to show the, the charge, the charge against all humanity, the indictment, the specific, he's going to show us 14 specific counts against mankind. And then he's going to show us what our defense is, what we can say back to God in defense of ourselves. And then finally, the verdict. And what we're going to find at the end of the day, we have one right as humans, as sinners, and that's the, the right to remain silent, the right to remain silent. So let's look at this. Let's walk through this. First of all, number one, the charge. Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter three. You can be in your Bibles. Uh, we're using the ESV on the screen for the most part. The charge in, in verse nine, he, he says this, in conclusion, your honor, to sum it up, he starts by saying this, what then? What then? Out of everything that we've just looked at, these last three chapters, he's going to sum this thing up. And he says, are we Jews any better off? Remember, Paul is a Jew. So are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged, again, looking at the the charge that's been made over the, the past three chapters, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And what he's going to show here, if you remember, as we looked through the courtroom, the heathen, the Jew, the moralist, that every single person on the planet is guilty and under sin. He says that pretty much sums it up. That's everybody. And, and, and the charge here that he's going to make is that all are, are under sin. Now, you notice that phrase. He says under sin. This is, he's not just saying that all have sinned. Now, he is going to say that next week. We'll see all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that verse. But there's something much deeper here than just saying, eh, everybody's done a couple of wrong things. 
It's not just that we commit sins. The phrase here is that we're under sin. And that that word, it means that we're under the power or under the authority of sin. In, In Romans 7, he says it's slightly different. He says we have been sold under sin, that we are slaves to sin. It's not just that we do a few wrong things, that sin is our master, that we've been handcuffed, that we have to do what our master says, that as sinners, all we can do is sin. And so the problem goes much deeper than just a few bad behaviors. I love the quote by this guy, his name's Douglas Moo, and his name's Douglas Moo, so I mean, come on. He says, for the problem with people is not just that they commit sins. It's not just that we commit sins, it's much deeper. He says, their problem is that they are enslaved to sin. What is needed, therefore, is a new power to break in and set people free from sin. And you're here this morning, do you feel that weight, the bondage of your sin. There's things that you know you shouldn't be doing that you're doing. Even you you work harder, and it seems like the harder you try, the deeper you fall into that sin. He says it's not just a little behavior modification you need. You need someone outside of yourself to free you from that sin. And who is it? Who is it that is under the authority of sin? Well, he's going to show us this morning very clearly. Who's under sin? Three times he's going to say the word all. All of us are under the power of sin. And, and who's innocent? He's going to say the exact opposite. No one is. All are under sin and no one is innocent. And in the Bible, oftentimes you'll see the number seven indicating completion or perfection. And what we're going to see here is a complete, perfect indictment and charge against all of humanity. Paul jams all seven billion of us on the planet and everybody who's ever lived onto the defendant's chair and says, you're all guilty. So that's the charge. Now here's the indictment. Now an indictment is just a formal charge or an accusation of a serious crime. So he's going to go, you're all under sin, but here are the specific charges. Here are the specific things you've done. And we're going to see 14 counts over these 12 verses. He's going to show exactly what mankind has done. He's going to look at our character, who we are, our conversations, what we say, and finally our conduct, the way we live, the things we do. And he starts by saying, as it is written. God himself, he's going to use words from the Old Testament to speak against us. He's going to quote six different Old Testament passages, primarily from Psalm 14 and Isaiah 59. And this is what he says. Now, there's 14 counts, so obviously we've got to rip through these things. Um, Number one, he says, there is none righteous, none righteous. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Now, our problem is when we see this word righteousness, we don't really understand what it means. The word means to be right, but it actually means to be perfectly right. If you remember at Easter time, I made the analogy that I can throw a rock much farther than my niece June, right? The one that can't even feed herself yogurt properly. I said, I can throw it much farther than her. Good good job, Uncle Justin. But here's the deal. If the target is the moon... I can get it much farther than June, but I'm not getting it anywhere close to the target. And and the point is, man, you might think that you're better than your your neighbor. Maybe you do less bad things, it seems to be, at least to you, better than your your neighbor. But the the, the standard, the standard, God says, if you want to come into my presence, if you want to have a relationship with me, then, then I demand, because of my nature, my level of holiness My level of perfection, and no one gets anywhere close to God's standard of righteousness. Then he says, no one understands. The second indictment is that no one understands. Now, he's not saying that we're unintelligent, that we can't put two and two together and see that equals four. 
what he's saying here, you remember in Proverbs, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is the beginning of understanding. It says, and you're going to say the last indictment is you don't fear God. And, and the reality is, is that because we don't fear God, we have a wrong and sinful mindset. He says nobody has the, the right understanding of their own sin and of God. No one comes to him properly, which leads him to this third indictment. He says, no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. Now, you might say, well, what, is, what does that mean? You remember ever since Adam and Eve back in the garden, when they sinned, what did they do? The moment they sinned, they tried to cover up their own sin with fig leaves, right? Maybe God won't see our sinfulness. And then they try to hide from him in the bushes. Well, can you hide from God? Of course not. And from that point on, God became the pursuer in the relationship with mankind. We have no longer, now you might say, well, man, but look around the world. There are people seeking for God in many different ways in every single country. But the truth is, even when we seek God, we seek him with a wrong and false motive. We do not seek God for his sake because he's worthy to be worshipped. We seek God because of what we can get out of it. That we see God as a holy vending machine. That if I punch the right buttons, out comes my spiritual candy bar. And he gives me what I want from him. It's not for his sake, it's, it's for mine. See, being under the power of sin, first and foremost, ruins our relationship with God. And Paul's going to begin and end his indictment on mankind saying, you're not right with God. You don't understand God. You don't fear God. You do not seek God rightly. Because we might often say, well, I'm a pretty good person, right? I don't lie that much. I don't steal. I don't kill. But that's not the main question. The main question is, do I love God with every fiber of my being? Is everything that I do an act of worship to him? And of course, none of us could claim that. God is the most important person in the universe. He's the reference point. And our biggest problem is rebellion against him. We can do good things, nice things for our neighbor, but if it's not ultimately done out of reverence for God, it's meaningless. It's not righteousness. The fourth thing he says is all have turned aside. Now this is a word picture, and there's a, a caravan going through the desert, and you've got off course. He says mankind has veered in the wrong direction. They're no longer moving toward God, they're moving toward themselves. And then indictment number five, they together have become worthless. Now, now what's he saying here? He's not saying that God doesn't value us. We were fearfully and wonderfully made in his image, and he loves us more than life itself. That's why he gave us Jesus. What he's saying is we have become worthless. The Hebrew word picture here was spoiled milk. You ever looked at the, the, the milk in the fridge and it's past the due date? That's the freakiest thing you could ever face. And then you take that cap off and you smell it and you go, whoa. This has become spoiled. This thing has lost its value, right? You can't sell spoiled milk. There's not a buyer's market for that. And what he's saying here is that because of our sin, because of our sin, sin has spoiled us, and we are no longer worthy, talking about worth, we are no longer worthy to enter into his presence. We have marred the image of God. And then he says, no one does good. No one does good, not even one. Now, this doesn't mean that we as humans always run around doing the worst possible thing imaginable, right? I mean, you look around in society. It's not complete anarchy. It's not just murdering and looting and just kind of running around. This is my sinful face. 
And it's, it's not that we're always doing the worst thing possible. Here's, uh, this was a helpful quote for me. John Stott said this, the totality of our corruption refers to its extent, twisting and tainting every part of our humanness, not to its degree, depraving every part of us absolutely. Now, for some of you, that might have just muddied the waters even more. So let me explain. What he's saying here is that we can do relatively good things. So like if, for example, um, Pastor Chuck is going to be moving soon. And I, I have, I could help him move, or I could not help him move. It would be better, nicer, a better, a, a more good thing to help him move. It would even be a, a less good thing to punch him in the face, right? I would never do that to you, brother, right? Never. I should have picked someone else. You're so sweet. Um, so, so there are degrees of like of harmful and less harmful things I could do to him. But here's what John Stott's saying, is that every single thing, even if I help Pastor Chuck move, my decision to help him move is going to be tainted with a sinful, selfish motive. That maybe I'm just helping him move and deep down on a subconscious level so that he'll say, wow, that Justin, he's such a great guy. Exactly. (laughs) Somebody agrees. Amen. Hallelujah. Man, you see him lift that couch? He's so buff. You know, like I'm hoping that my helping him move actually puts me in a better light. Every single, there's no altruistic thing that we can ever do in our lives that's purely for the love of God and the love of other people. Jesus told the rich young ruler, he said, there's only one who's good, and that's God himself. It's God himself. And then Paul takes the position of a physician, and he's going to examine sinful man from head to toe, and he starts with the head. He says their throat is an open grave. Just like when you go to the doctors, right? The first thing they do, tongue depressors say, ah, and he goes, whoa, this is more than just us needing a tic-tac, right? And just eating some garlic and our breath stinking. Here's what he says. This is, this is a reference to, in the ancient East, there were um, gravesides where they would actually have open graves. And at nighttime, if somebody was walking through the graveside, what could happen? You could fall into one of those graves, and that's not a pretty picture. What he's saying is our mouths can operate like that. They become traps Dangerous traps for people to fall into that can destroy them. And this reminds us of the power of words. I remember when I was in fourth grade, I was sitting there with a friend on the couch. And you know how when you sit on the couch, I had shorts on, the shorts kind of rode up a little high, and so I have some exposed thighs going on. And you know how when you sit down, the thighs kind of pancake out, right? And I'm a skinny little fourth grader, whatever. Well, my buddy's sitting next to me, He looks over at me, and I think it was probably completely innocent on his part, but he starts slapping my leg. And he goes, chubby thighs, chubby thighs, right? And I look at it, and you know, it's it's funny because in that moment, I'd never even thought of myself and my weight, but all of a sudden, those words penetrate. And obviously, here I am, as a 34-year-old, still very vividly remembering those words, right? I'm fine. It's it's all good. It's fine. (laughs) we've all been on either side of words that can destroy. And what Paul is showing us here is, is that our words, they're not just words. It's not just sticks and stones and break my bones and names will never hurt me. No, he says that these are deadly. They're deadly. In fact, his next three indictments say that. They use their tongues to deceive the lies. The venom of asps is under their lips. He says when you sink your teeth into people, you inject venom that kills 
Verse 14, their mouths, it's, it's full of curses and bitterness. And I like the way he says full of. It's, it's not just saying that we're always cursing, that we're always saying bitter things. He's saying the potential for that is in us. And even the thoughts, or even if we were pushed hard enough, that this sinful thinking, these words of death, they reside in each and every one of us. We just need to get bumped hard enough for it to come out. And we have to ask ourselves, when I'm speaking to someone else, am I giving life or am I taking life? Am I building up or am I, am I destroying, am I tearing down? Because make no mistake, it is always one of the two. There is no neutrality. We're in the flesh or we're in the spirit. We're moving people toward life or we are moving people to destruction and death. With every word that we say, every idle word will be given account for one day. And then he moves from the, the head down to the feet. He says they are, their feet are swift to shed blood. And, are, and a quick review of human history would, would remind us of that. We look at our own civil war, how, how quickly nations have been to rush into destruction, destroying other nations, even themselves, for sinful, self-centered motives. And maybe in our church, we don't actually use bombs and guns. But make, make no mistake, there is violence going on in our communities every single day the gossip that we spread about one another, the way we'll throw someone else under the bus, take someone out just to make ourselves look better. We are swift to shed the blood of others for our own sake. Then the next indictment, number 12, in their paths are ruin and misery, 13, and the way of peace they have not known. Just like our words, our actions are not neutral. We are either moving toward death and destruction or restoration and peace. And the path of a sinful man is always leading toward destroying, not making peace and harmony. And the last thing he says is there is no fear of God before their eyes. Again, he sums it up. It's about our heart relationship with God. And he's, what he's saying here is that we each have a rebellious refusal to bow the knee to God, to rightly revere him, love him, and worship him as he is worthy of. And so his indictment here, he steps back, he zooms back out. And what Paul is saying here is all that man is, our character, all that man says, our conversation, and all that man does, our conduct, is total depravity, is completely sinful, and deserves the wrath of God. That's the indictment. So, so what's our defense? What do we have to say back to God? When he says guilty, what do we say back to him well, there was a, uh, during the French Revolution, there was an infidel. His name was, and you've got to say it with the French accent, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, right? That's the uh, lips for that. That's right there. There you go. Just, you're always learning here. You're always learning. This dude was major league jerk. He shunned his own wife. He sent his own children to an orphanage. I mean, he, he turned on his own family. And, and then he had this famous line when he was talking about his actions said, I will stand before God and defend myself. I'm going to tell God what's up. I'm going to tell him exactly why I did those things. And I'm going to give him all the reasons. It's not my fault. In fact, God, it's your fault. And what Paul's telling us here is he's going, man, make no mistake. On that day of judgment, when you stand before your creator, before your judge, and God looks you in the eye, you will have no defense. You will have no defense. Because in, in, in human courts... Mistakes are made, 
right? And maybe some evidence was wrong, or maybe, maybe you were even falsely accused. And there's a chance that you could convince the jury and, and that, the human judge that, that you're in the right. But our God, our judge, sees everything, knows everything, and only makes right, perfect, just decisions. We will have no defense. In fact, that's exactly what he says in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable before God. Our mouths will be closed. And what he says here is, first, those who are under the law. Now, who's that referring to? That's the Jews, right? He says, the Jews, the law shows that those who are under the law, the Jewish people, it shows they're guilty. Remember, the law shows, hey, you did not keep this law. You're guilty as charged. But he doesn't just say the the Jews are guilty here. He says it shows that every mouth will be stopped and the whole world will be accountable before God. Now, how does that make sense? If it's the Jew that's not keeping the law, why is it that the whole world would be guilty? Well, you think about it this way. If I'm watching a buddy try to pull this stunt. (laughs) You can't. One more time. And that's not good, right? So, so if, I'm, if I watch him do that, and then, and then I decide, hey, I'm going to try it myself. Maybe I'll have better luck. That would be foolish, right? <laughs> exactly. No. I, when I see him do that, I say, I would do no better. So, so let's get that off the screen. So when the Jew takes his rock and tries to hit the moon, tries to keep the law, and fails miserably... It shows that not just the Jews' inability to keep the law, but that every person from every nation would also fail to do the exact same thing. If the Jew can't hit the moon with the rock, neither can you and neither can I. We are all guilty as charged. So then he gives us the verdict. Here's the verdict. And, And we see in verse 19, he says, the whole world's accountable before God and they're guilty. And then he explains why this is, why this is. He says, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So that's, that's a mouthful, so let's, let's break that down. He's going to show us things about the law, two things. One, one, what it can do, and one, what it cannot do. Number one, the law can't justify. The law can't justify. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Justified is a big word that means to make you right to be declared right in God's sight. He says the law can't do that. In fact, the law was never intended to do that. The law was never intended to be able to make us right with God because as sinners, we can't keep the law. But here he shows what the law can do. What the law can do is reveal sin. He says since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now now here's, here's a way to explain it. You know the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat, right? Hopefully you do. A thermostat changes the temperature in the room, right? If you want it to be hotter, push it up. If you want it to be colder, pull it down or whatever. Thermometers, all they do is tell you what the temperature is. Okay, the thermometer can't actually change the temperature. It just reveals what the temperature is. In the same way that a mirror, if you look into a mirror, the mirror just tells you how you look. It can't actually change your looks. It just tells you how you look. Or you think about an x-ray. The x-ray can't heal you. The x-ray simply reveals what's right or wrong in you. He says the law is like a spiritual thermometer. You can't become more good or less good by keeping the law. All the law can do is show you you're bad. It takes your temperature and says you're a sinner guilty. You look in the mirror and the law shows you your sin. The x-ray of your heart is taken and the law shows your wickedness. 
Because as we'll see in Romans 7, in fact, our flesh, when, we, when our flesh sees the law, it just actually makes us want to do sin more. It doesn't make us sin less. And so, so here's what John Stott says about this. He says, the function of the law was not to bestow salvation, however, but to convince men of their need of it. The law was given to show us just how sinful we are and to show us our need for a Savior. See, the law, it shows us God's holy standard. He goes, you want to live with me, then you have to be perfect like I am. You can't lie, you can't cheat, you can't steal, you can't kill, you can't commit adultery, you have to worship me perfectly, you can't worship anything else other than me. And the standard, when it's shown to us, all it does is it shows us how far we fall short of that standard. It teaches me I'm a sinner. So Paul sums up by saying, here's God's bar, and none of you come even close. Guilty as charged. So, so what do we do about this? As we, as we close here, three applications I want us to make, take home. Number one, to realize you cannot, that I cannot make myself right with God. Each of us will face the judge someday. How do you finish this sentence? God will accept me because... God will accept me because, and how do you finish that sentence? Are you still looking for evidence to give you ground to say, God will accept me because I've tried my best, because I've done a pretty good job, because I've done better than someone else? Are we still looking for evidence to justify ourselves, or do we agree with God that we are guilty as charged? Do we realize the depth and totality of our sin? My dad has this delusion that he can solve every problem in his life, every medical need, with two magical things, lotion and ice. Everything. Your arm could be falling off. He's like, I just put some ice on it, right? Let's go get the frozen peas out of the freezer. It'll be fine, right? You have leprosy. He's like, get some Jergens, right? I gotta take care of that. Look at he split. He thinks everything. And so recently, sorry, it was it's Mother's Day, so I'm gonna pick on the father. Right, it's just how it's gonna work. So, mom, you get a free pass today. Uh, so, so he has uh, he had a hip that was falling apart, and of course, your first reaction is to want to try to take care of it yourself. I got a bad hip. Grab the lotion, honey. Where's the ice? We'll take care of this baby. But when he came to realize, when the x-ray was taken and he was seeing the depth of his problem, he knew there was only one solution, and that was to get a total hip replacement. That the surgeon had to give him something that he could never do for himself. There was no amount of maintenance and upkeep that could make his hip better. He needed a new hip. And what we have to understand is that we can't do anything to make ourselves right with God. It must be a gift that he gives to us. The problem isn't just that we commit a few sins, that we just need to modify our behavior a little bit. We are slaves to sin, completely under its power. And we need someone else outside of ourselves to come in and rescue us. So we need to put down the lotion and the ice and allow the great surgeon to give us a new heart. Secondly, we need to realize there's nothing good in ourselves or in others. There's nothing good in ourselves or others. And we see this in the way that we put expectations on ourselves and others. I love the, the quote by William Newell. He said, to be disappointed in yourself is to have believed in yourself. To be disappointed in yourself is to have believed in yourself. If you're ever surprised by your own sin, if you've let yourself down, that shows you had put faith in yourself, that you thought you could do good, when the reality is we can't. 
And this goes for other people too. Why are we continuously shocked when other people hurt us? When other people let us down? When other people wrong us? When other people act selfishly toward us? Of course, they're sinners. The real shock would be when somebody actually does something good. That should be the shock. There's nothing good in me. There's nothing good in you. And what this brings us to is a place of grace and patience, right? If I understand there's nothing good in me, I'm going to have a lot more patience for other people as well. Because I'm also going to understand there's, there's the only good, the only good that's going to come out of this community is Jesus himself. That's the only place we can place our faith. If anything good is going to happen, if real love is going to happen here, it's got to be Christ in and through us. He's the only one that's good. We have to believe that. And finally, we have to realize the judge is coming back soon. The gavel's come down. Guilty declared. All of mankind. And I've been thinking about my brother George this week. And I've been thinking about the sobering reality that none of us knows when we're going to take our turn to go beat Jesus or to go to whatever's next. And we didn't know that on May 8th, God would take George to be home with him. God knew. We didn't. And when I received that call, my world froze. And all the little things that I was doing that afternoon didn't seem to matter so much anymore. And what mattered was George, and Francie, and the family, and souls. And it could be a priority rearranger for us. And if this passage is true, and all of mankind is guilty, that we're all sitting on death row in our own sin, what can be more urgent than to spread the gospel? To tell everyone we know through our actions and through our words that we are under the power of sin and only Jesus can release us from that. And that's exactly where we're going to go next week as we're going to see the great turn that yes, we are sinners, but Jesus has come and there is hope. There's hope for George and there's hope for us. The ushers would would come forward. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to receive the offering before we end the time as sinners, thanking our Savior for what he gave us, what we could never do ourselves. Father, we come to you with heavy hearts this week. We grieve the loss of a good brother, a sinner just like the rest of us, one who had placed his faith in Jesus. We see from all the evidence, from his own proclamation, from the life that he lived, Father, we look forward already to the day. We miss him terribly. We look forward to the day to be with him again and to be in your presence. Between now and then, would you, by your grace, help us to prioritize, to love people well. Lord, to to show us that, that everything we're doing and everything that we're saying is either moving people toward Jesus or toward ourselves. It's moving people toward destruction and death or toward life and peace. 
Father, give us the grace to be a part of the beautiful call you've given us to tell this world the gospel of Jesus, that we can't fix ourselves up, that we need the surgeon to give us a new heart, a new life, and that's been offered through Jesus. He's here to release us from the power of sin and death and judgment. Father, as, as we give you these offerings, we just want to give you our lives. We want to give you our questions. We want to give you our grief. And just to take it, to know that your love surpasses anything that we can understand. We need you in Jesus. We have you. We want to worship you in his name. In your son's beautiful, life-giving, eternally securing name. Amen.